You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Well, Psalm 9 includes many different things. There's a lot going on in this psalm. In this psalm, we find praises of God, giving thanks with our whole hearts. We find descriptions of God's actions in the past, the things that He has done. We find sort of general truths about how God relates to His world and to His people and to the wicked. We find exhortations, sing praise to the Lord, calling upon others to join in the praise. We find requests for mercy, be gracious to me, O God. And we even find almost demands for divine action, arise, like telling God what to do. But if I were to pick one theme that unites all of these different things together in this psalm, I'd pick the righteousness and the justice of God. That language of righteousness, justice, and judgment appears explicitly throughout the psalm. 9 verse 4, you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. Verse 7, the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice. He Judges the people, the world with righteousness, his peoples with uprightness. Or again in verse 16, the Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. And finally again in 19, arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. From the beginning to the end of this psalm, the theme of justice and righteousness and judgment is pervasive. So what I want us to do this morning is I want us to explore what, we, what God's righteousness and God's justice is in this psalm. And the outline for that is very, very simple. First, I want us to explore what God's righteousness does. Then I want to take us a step deeper and say, talk about what God's righteousness is. And then finally, I want us to think about what should we do in light of that? How should we live if that's what God's righteousness does, and if that's what God's righteousness is, how should we live? So that's the rough outline. And so I've summarized uh, four things I see in this passage that God's righteousness does. And for each one, what I want to do is I'm going to point to where it shows up in the psalm, and then I'm going to fill it out from elsewhere in Scripture so that you see it's not just here in this psalm, it's other places these same elements appear. So number one. What does God's righteousness do? God's righteousness compels Him to rule His creation with impartiality. His righteousness in this psalm especially is connected to His kingship, His rule, His reign. As the king, as the maker of heaven and earth, God rules. He reigns over His creation in righteousness, which means that He judges His creation with impartiality, with equity. So that's 9-4, right? You have sat on the throne, that's king language, giving righteous judgment. Or 7 and 8, the Lord sits enthroned, there it is again, He's got a throne forever. He has established His throne for justice, and He judges the world with righteousness, judges the peoples with uprightness. And that same theme, that same language, almost identical, shows up elsewhere in the Psalms. In Psalm 98, verse 9, we hear this, He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. And so their uprightness is substituted for equity, meaning he gives to people what what they deserve. Like if if he treats equal things equal, 
That's what it means to be just. That's what righteousness does. Or again, in Psalm 99, verses 1 to 4, the Lord reigns. Hear the king language? Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. Now listen, the king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. And so this reign of God is universal. He judges all the peoples. All of creation is under his feet, and he judges every aspect of it with equity, with impartiality, with his righteousness. And this means he doesn't show favoritism. He doesn't pervert justice and put his finger on the scales. He does what is right. That's what his righteousness does. And if if you want to think about a clear story in the Scripture that really demonstrates this, you remember the story uh, in Genesis 18 when Abraham and God are talking about Sodom and Gomorrah? Abraham, in that path, God plans to go down and judge those wicked cities, to pour out his wrath upon them. And Abraham appeals to God on their behalf, and he says this. Think about what he's appealing to here. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? So, right, what's he appealing to? It's equity, right? You're going to treat the righteous and the wicked the same? That doesn't feel like it's impartial. It doesn't feel like it's equal. You're, you're treating things that are unlike as though they were the same. That's not right. Are you really going to do that? And then he says this to God, far be it from you to do such a thing. You won't do that to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked, far be that from you, now listen, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just, what is righteous. That's what righteousness does. To sweep away the righteous with the wicked would would not be right. It would not be judging with equity, with uprightness, with impartiality. And God is the righteous king and judge of all the earth. So, first thing that God's righteousness does is rule creation with impartiality and equity. Second, God's righteousness compels him to punish the wicked. This is pervasive in this psalm. Psalm 9, David describes the righteous judgment of God, verse 4. And then he goes on. What is is this righteous judgment of God? You have rebuked the nations. You've made the wicked perish. You've blotted out their name forever and ever. That enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. This is annihilation judgments from God. It's what righteousness does. This is God's what we often call his retributive justice, retributive, retribution. He brings retribution. He answers evil with his judgment. He brings ruin, destruction upon the wicked. And this kind of righteousness is closely tied to God's anger. This is what we saw a few weeks ago in Psalm 7, right? Psalm 7, verse 11, you remember this? God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. This is an extension of that sovereign and righteous rule over all creation. If he's going to judge impartially, what does that do? What does that mean? He must give the wicked what they deserve. 
and what they deserve is wrath. This again shows up throughout Scripture. Listen to a few passages. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. Psalm 129, verse 4. O Lord of hosts, who judges righteously, who tests the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you I have committed my cause. Jeremiah eleven twenty. The Lord has put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment. Isaiah 59. 17 and 18. And then there's this great um, prayer of Daniel in the book of Daniel chapter 9. And in it, I want you to just listen. This is, you might think, oh, this is only for the nations. No, no, no. No, no, no. God's people too. This is what Daniel says. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And so the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He goes on to say, therefore, The Lord God has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. Why? For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. When God judges the nations, when God judges his people, what is compelling him to do that? His righteousness, his justice. Even in the New Testament, because of your hard and unpenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, Romans 2.5. And so God's righteousness not just rules over creation with impartiality, but in particular extended punishes the wicked with wrath. Number three, God's righteousness in this psalm compels him to keep his promises and save his people. This is Psalm 910. Those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. God does not abandon those who seek him. He keeps his covenant. He is faithful to his promises. Why? Because he is righteous. His righteousness compels him to keep his promises. Listen to a few passages. Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. This is his people. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with what? My righteous right hand. It's his righteous right hand that preserves and keeps and holds his people. Or again, Psalm 98, 2 and 3, the Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Notice that parallel. He's shown his salvation He has revealed his righteousness. Those are parallel in the passage. He has remembered his steadfast love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. When God saves his people, he does it in his righteousness because of his steadfast love and his faithfulness. When God keeps his promises, he does what is right. I mentioned Daniel 9 a moment ago. This is what's remarkable about that passage. Daniel's praying to God, and he says, we've sinned against you, and you've punished us. You've poured out calamity and curse upon us. Why? Because you're righteous. The very next thing he prays is this. Listen. Listen to the very next verse. After saying, you've judged us, you've poured out wrath upon us because you're righteous, then Daniel says, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from the city of Jerusalem, your holy hill. 
because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, we have become a byword among all who are around us. In other words, you've judged us because you're righteous, and now because you're righteous, stop judging us. Turn aside your anger and your wrath. Now, what, why? Because we're your people. We're your people. We belong to you. You made promises to us. You won't utterly cut us off. You won't wipe us out forever. And so because you're righteous, keep your promises. That's what Daniel prays. Righteousness doesn't just punish. It saves and delivers God's people according to his promise. Finally, God's righteousness compels him to rescue the oppressed. In Psalm 9, after celebrating God's rule over all of creation, David says, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. God's righteousness is what gives him a particular concern for the weak, for the oppressed, for the afflicted. And this, again, is an extension of those other three. Because he rules impartially, when the wicked treat the weak with partiality, like we don't have to treat them the same we treat everybody else. We're better. They're defenseless. We can crush them. When the the wicked treat the weak partially, God says, I will treat the weak impartially. I will rescue them and restore them. God acts in his righteousness both to punish the wicked and also to rescue the oppressed. It's often the same act that does this, right? The same act that judges the wicked is what sets the captive free. Psalm 103, verse 6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. And so, what does God's righteousness do? It rules creation with impartiality. It punishes the wicked with wrath. It keeps his promises to his people, and he especially rescues the weak and the oppressed. All of these things are right, but they are not the heart of God's righteousness. They are what God's righteousness does, but they're not what God's righteousness is. In other words, when you you think about God's justice and God's righteousness, you have to go deeper than his impartial judgment. You have to go deeper than his judgment on the wicked. You have to go deeper than rescuing the oppressed and keeping his promises. There's something underneath that that kind of makes, there's some common thing that leads him to do all of those four different things. And you can get at this by asking a simple question. All of those things, those four activities, all of them are right. How does God know that they're right? Does he have a book? Like when God is considering what course of action to take, does he pull a big book off the shelf to consult it and say, hmm, what would be the right thing to do in such, in such a situation? Does God have a standard outside of himself which he consults in order to determine what is right for him to do? And, of course, we all think, that's absurd. Of course not. So how does he know? How does he know what's right? What makes all of those actions righteous? Here's my answer. All of those actions flow from God's unswerving, zealous commitment to his own worth and value and glory. That's the heart of God's righteousness. The deepest dimension of God's righteousness is not his rule over creation, it's not his judgment of the wicked, it's not the salvation of his people, and it's not the rescuing of the oppressed. That's not the deepest. What the deepest is, is his fundamental allegiance to do everything that he does for his own namesake, for the sake of his glory. And so, can I show that? Can we show that from the Bible? Well, there's lots of ways we could show it. 
I'm just going to give you two big arguments from outside the Bible and then show you a few places in here where you can see it under the surface. Number one, there are passages in the Scriptures that explicitly link God's righteousness to his commitment to his glory. Psalm 143, verse 11. Listen very carefully to how the prayer is going here. For your namesake, O Lord, preserve my life. Okay, so stop, ask the question. Here's the request. Preserve my life. Why? For your namesake. So it's an appeal to God for preservation for the sake of his name. Not my name, his name, right? Now, Hebrew parallelism, oftentimes you'll have one line, then the next line will say the same basic idea using different words. That's how lots of the Psalms work. Okay, here's the next line. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. So preserve my life for your namesake. Let me say it another way. Bring my soul out of trouble because you're righteous, in your righteousness. So righteousness and acting for his name there are the same. Or again, Psalm 48, verse 10. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Parallel, your right hand is filled with righteousness. So God's righteousness there is connected to the extent of his name and his praise. Or finally, Psalm 97, verse 6, the heavens proclaim his righteousness. Parallel, all the people see his glory. So in each of those passages, that's just a smattering. We could go to a bunch more. But God's righteousness is tightly linked to his namesake, to his praise, to his glory. But I think the clearest way to see this is actually from the book of Romans. This is where Paul, summarizing the whole history of redemption, is going to bring it together, and the whole book is about God's righteousness. That's the, the theme verse in 117 is the revelation of God's righteousness, the righteousness of God. So I want you to listen to two passages. The first focuses on what human unrighteousness is, and I want you to think. So we're trying to figure out what's the heart of righteousness. We can do that by contrast. What's unrighteousness? See the negative, you'll see the positive. Listen to this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, okay, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So we've been saying, what does God's righteousness do? Those four things. What does human unrighteousness do? It suppresses the truth. But what's the heart of human unrighteousness? Next verse. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. We know who God is. We know his attributes. We've seen him in creation. So they are without excuse. Why? Listen. For although they knew God through his revelation in creation, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. The heart of their unrighteousness was the refusal to honor him as God, to be insufficiently moved and awed by his glory and his worth and his value. So much so that the next verse says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. In other words, they despised God's glory and traded it away for earthly, worldly things and what's the word for that activity? What's the heart of that? That's unrighteousness. It's what calls forth his wrath. So that's human unrighteousness is failing to be committed to the worth and value of God's glory, so much so that you trade it away 
and refuse to honor him as God. Second, in Romans, chapter 3, Paul's going to describe how God fixes this. And he says this, listen to the language again. This is now righteousness. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ. God's revealing His righteousness through the redemption that's in Christ in the face of human sin. Now listen to this. Whom God put forward. So God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Why? This is the question. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. Stop there. So, God puts Jesus on the cross to show His righteousness. Now, why did His righteousness need to be shown? Because in His forbearance, He passed over former sins. What's going on there? Every time God passed over sins, what did it look like? It looked like, you don't care about your glory. Look at the way all of those human beings are despising you, forgetting you, rejecting you, refusing to honor you as God, trading away you. Look at what all of those human beings like David and Abraham and Moses, look at what they're doing and you're just jumping over it like it's no big deal. You know what that looks like, God? You're unrighteous, meaning you don't care about your glory. You don't care about your name. Look how despised your name is. And so when it comes to Jesus, God says, I am going to demonstrate, no, no, I am righteous. I really, really care about the worth and value of my name, so much so I will slaughter my son to prove it. That's how committed to my name I am. That in order to save people, I'm not just going to save them and pretend like sin's no big deal. No, I will punish Jesus so that you know the heart of unrighteousness in men is so horrific because it's a despising of my name. So, From that, I conclude that God's righteousness, the heart of it, is his unswerving commitment to his glory. And it's like this. God is infinitely valuable. Like, objectively speaking, he just is the most valuable being in the universe and beyond it. There's no one like him. He's one of a kind. That's, That's actually what we mean by his holiness, his uniqueness. Like, he's one of a kind. When we say something's one of a kind, we mean it's valuable. You can't, if you lost it, (laughs) you can't get another one because there's only one. That's, value is tied to that scarcity and there's no one like God. So he's valuable. And so that's his holiness, his worth, his value. And then what's the right thing for God to do if that's true? If he's the most valuable, what's right for him to do? Value himself treasure himself, act for himself, do everything that he does for the sake of his name, and that's what we call his righteousness. And you can see this a little bit here in Psalm 9, right? So in, it, it's, it's not the main thrust. It's under the surface, but it's there. Think about this. Psalm 17, sorry, verse 18. The needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. So the needy are forgotten. But why are the needy forgotten? Previous verse, the wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. That's the problem in this psalm. 
all of these things that the wicked are doing that have caused God's judgment, what have they done that's so horrific to call forth this judgment? They forgot God. When men forget God, what do they do? They think they're more than men. Verse 20, put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know they are but men. Men exalt themselves other, over other men when they forget God. So it's there, it's under the surface, or you could see it more positively in verse 13 and 14 when David prays for deliverance. See my affliction, be gracious to me. Why? Verse 14, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. I want you to save me because you really want to be praised. You really want me to rejoice in your salvation, so be gracious to me, deliver me, so that I can sing about it. That's why. He's appealing to God's love for his own glory in order to be saved in God's righteousness. Okay. So because God is unswervingly committed to his glory, he creates this world filled with worth and value. He makes this this world where everything fits together in harmony, and he says, I am going to rule this in such a way that I value everything in it the way it should be valued. That's right. If I value everything the way it should be valued, that's right. So I'm going to judge and assess and and value things with equity and uprightness. But because of human sin, when human beings rebel, his righteousness kicks into action, and he says, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to put it back right. And that means he punishes unrighteousness. He upholds his glory by rebuking nations and bringing destruction upon them. He upholds his glory by remembering the afflicted, by avenging their blood and rescuing the oppressed, and he upholds his glory by showing himself to be trustworthy, to be faithful, to be steadfast in keeping his promises to those who seek him. So everything, his sovereign rule over the world, his judgment and his wrath upon unrighteousness of men, his deliverance and saving power for the afflicted, and his faithfulness to his covenant promises All of those are flowing from one common source. God loves and is committed to his own glory. Now, how should we live in light of it? It's the last thing. I've got three of these. Um, Number one, we must evaluate all earthly definitions of justice in light of that definition of justice. This is really important in our day, I think. Like, justice is all over the place. The concern for justice and injustice is pervasive in our culture. Lots of people, Christians and non-Christians, are talking about what is right and what is wrong, what is just and what is unjust. And as we, as, as individuals and as a church, as we enter into those conversations, we can't just be conformed to that definition of justice. It needs to be brought back to this definition of justice. Few people root their discussions of justice in the world in God's commitment to his own glory. But the reason that the oppression of the weak is wrong is because the weak bear the image of God. Right? The reason that the, when the strong persecute the weak, the reason that is such an offense is not just because the weak are so valuable in themselves. It's because the weak are made in the image of God. And therefore, to despise them is to despise him. To forget them is to forget him. That's the deeper root. And so as we have conversations, as you think through what's happening in the news, bring it back here. 
bring it back to what, what does God's righteousness do because what God's righteousness is. That's the first thing. Number two, this is more personal. That helps cultural stuff maybe. But when it comes to our own lives, when we're praying to God, we ought to make our appeals to him based on his righteousness. We ought to appeal to the fact that God is so committed to his own worth and value that he loves to save his people. When we cry to God, when we say, God, rescue the oppressed, do it for your namesake. Show yourself, make yourself known. That's what he says, verse 16. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are ensnared in the work of their own hands. Like, make yourself known. Show them who you are. That's what we appeal to. Maintain our just cause. Why? Because we want you to vindicate your name. Reveal your glory in the sight of the nations by punishing the wicked and saving his people. Let me just say here, the reason I think this is so important is it's what makes our rejoicing in the punishment of the wicked godly. It is, it is so easy to want to see judgment done because it's, all, because it's an offense to you, right? But so Bible's filled with imprecatory psalms. You know what imprecatory psalms are? They're the ones where it calls down judgment, right? God judged the wicked. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, that kind of psalm. And we get uncomfortable with this because we're like, I don't know if I'm allowed to pray that. Can I say that? Is it okay for me to go to God and say, God, there are wicked people in this world. Slay them. Take them out. And what I want to say is, you ought to pray that way. But you can only pray that way if your understanding of righteousness is not about purely human concerns. Because if it is purely human concerns, you know which human is going to immediately become the star of that show? You are. And all of a sudden, you'll be calling down imprecations because you're offended, because you were slighted, because your glory was ignored. But if your fundamental concern is the glory and honor of God in the world, the display of God, then you can say to God, God, magnify your name either by saving them or taking them out. That's a good way to pray. I pray that way a lot about lots of things. When I get provoked by things out there, I say, Lord, this is not about me. This is about I see hurting people, and I know that hurting people is a reflection of how you've been forgotten. Magnify your name. My first choice is that you would convert the wicked. But if you don't convert them, take them out. And you can only pray that way if this is your understanding of righteousness. We pray for God to humble the pride of men by reminding the nations that they're only men. They're not God. Third, not only do we evaluate definitions in light of this definition, not only do we pray and appeal to God's righteousness and his concern for his glory. Third, when when justice is done, we rejoice. You don't just ask for it. When God's justice is done, you rejoice. When the wicked receive their just desserts, you rejoice. Especially when God does it in this poetic fashion. I don't know if you caught this in the psalm. I think this is one of the amazing, interesting, like striking things, is that part of what David celebrates is not just that justice is done, but that God does it with a kind of flourish. 
right? The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. Like that's part of what's remarkable to him is it's not just, oh, they got taken out. It's that they dug the pit and then they fell in it. And he goes, that's how you know God did it. God's putting things right. He's giving them what they deserve. The nations sink in the pit that they made. Their foot is caught in their own net. They are snared by the work of their own hands. Because they forget God, God causes them to be forgotten. Right? There's this poetic justice. There's a beauty to that that the psalmist sees and celebrates. On the other hand, those who know God's name and trust him, they won't be forgotten. God will be their stronghold. And when he is, we should sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. We must declare his deliverance before all peoples. When he acts on our behalf, we give thanks to him with our whole hearts and exult in him. In him, that's how the psalmist prays. He cries for God's deliverance from affliction so that he can praise the Lord and rejoice in his salvation, which brings us finally to the table. Here's a table of righteousness. Here we can see and rejoice in God's salvation. Here we can see his faithfulness to his promises. Here we can see that the wrath that our sin deserves. Here we remember that Christ fell into that pit that the wicked dug, but he didn't just descend to the gates of death. God lifted him up from the gates of death up to the gates of the heavenly Zion where he sits enthroned even now ready to judge the living and the dead. Here at this table, we proclaim Christ's death until he comes to make himself known, to judge the nations, to pour out his vengeance, to rescue the weak, to fulfill his promises, and to display the glory of God for all to see. So come and welcome to Jesus. Father, I do pray. I pray, God, I appeal to your love for your name. Help us to love your name. Help us to get in on it. You you love and sit enthroned in the praises of your people. And so, Lord, give us a heart for your righteousness, a love for your glory that then issues out in our lives so that we do what your righteousness does, and we treat people without favoritism, and we keep our promises, and we point people to you, and we judge And we rejoice when the wicked receive their due. And so, Lord, fill us with this righteousness that the world may know that you are God. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Invite the pastors to come for the bread. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.